Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we believe that helps us apply them to our lives better and draw more power out of them, and we certainly need that these days. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I'm thrilled to have back with me a, a common uh, co-host or guest, uh, Dr. Phil or Philip, but I, I call him Phil, Phil Allred, uh, who is at uh, BYU-Idaho teaching religion there. Uh, Phil and I taught in Jerusalem together. Phil did studies at BYU and at Notre Dame or Notre Dame, whichever way you want to say it. And uh, as, if you've heard him before, you'll recognize he is just a fantastic guest. So welcome, Phil. Very kind of you, Kerry. It's, it's my honor to be with you again. Thank you. Yeah. So what else should we know about you? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I I once jumped in a vat of jello. Um, oh, that's just yeah. one of those weird things. I was hoping I would win the prize. It was back in the days when they had raging waters. I don't know if they still have that oh, yeah. something there, but I drove uh, drove up there from campus and was one of the hundred lucky people to jump in the vat, pull out a tennis ball. I was supposed to have some number on it, right? That I think I was two numbers off of winning the scooter or whatever it was. Uh, but, but still, that's cool. I did not know that. So, all right, that's, it, it, there you go. It's not an, a common thing, and it was so deafeningly silent inside the jello vat. I have to say it was just the most kind of like bold. Was, uh, was it hard to get out? Oh yeah, it was kind of hard to get out. And then it was hard to get the jello off for days yeah. I felt. But yeah. So that was hilarious. Sticky. It wasn't worth I'm it. I'm just worried you might suffocate in that jello, but uh, <laughs> right. yeah. as I recall, they had some ropes and people trying to help you, but it was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, now I, I've got another thing on my literal bucket of jello list so yeah okay <laughs> that's right there you go well cool well thank you and and uh you're at byu idaho uh, i believe you're going to come spend a little time uh, with us in provo and then go back to byu idaho because you won't be able to take being with us for too long but anyway we're we're excited <laughs> about that and just excited about all sorts of good stuff so same here it'll be a great season of learning for me i'm excited all right. So before we jump in, Phil, let's just kind of maybe uh, recap what we're going to talk about. So that's a precap, what we're going to talk about, uh, which is we're, we're going to uh, talk about, of course, John and the Savior, but especially the story of the woman who's taken in adultery and uh, the, the way the Savior approaches that and how revelation comes to play in that and how uh, the Savior sees her potential or doesn't doesn't uh, really uh, see her failure as the end of her or who she is. Uh, and we're going to talk about how that applies to us. Does that sound like what we're going to talk about today? That would be wonderful. I think that is that is perfect. would love that. I think John would be pleased and I think the Savior would be pleased if we focused on those things. So many great things, but I love those. And today we have, I think, one of the richest blocks of Scripture in Scripture. Uh, I mean, anytime you're in the book of John, that's good. And I think we're all John. For this week, and John seven to ten has so there's just more than we could. But if we did this for five hours, we wouldn't cover John <laughs> seven through ten. Uh, so we'll just hit a couple of highlights. But it's a really rich, wonderful, beautiful block of scripture. So uh, why don't you take us to say a couple of things that are real to you, Phil? You bet. I'm I'm honored. This is such a, an amazing section, as you said. You know, we have uh, you know the the. The Feast of Tabernacles going on and Jesus hasn't been in in he's kind of sneaking into Jerusalem in some ways, you know, he's it's just an interesting period uh, of time for him. 
where there he's got to do this kind of carefully. It's not his time yet. And yet there's, there's growing contentions and uh, he's, yeah. he's uh, really in a, a, a fascinating spot. In fact, though, the, the, the passage I want to spend perhaps our first little bit on is, is in chapter eight, because he's there teaching in the temple and he has this just atrocious and uh, shocking kind of interaction with a, with a mob essentially who've brought this woman to him and and the scene is i, I can't I, I one day when we get to roll the video you know and see yeah. this i love how you know various groups are trying to make those videos if you will of their best ability i'm enjoying a lot of the interpretations i don't know how accurate they are but i'm enjoying a lot of yeah. them yeah they make uh, you think and hopefully make you go back and look at the scriptures and say okay what's in there what's not so anything that gets you in the scriptures is a good thing yes couldn't anything agree that more. makes it more real oh sorry what yeah yeah I just love that. And so it'll be fun when groups like Stay the Chosen or whatever take this scene in, you know, but but this moment, you know, with with him there and it, it's just such an ideal thing. I, I've, I've had the privilege, both of us have, uh, perhaps some of our listeners have had that privilege of being on the Mount of Olives and and then looking across at the Temple Mount and the Kidron Valley in between. And, and if you haven't, then, you, you know, no worries. But, but if you just kind of picture this, this kind of rural setting on one side and then this very kind of urban setting on the other side, and you've, yeah. you've just crossed from one world almost to another. And here he is in this urban setting. But he's in verse 2, it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and he goes into the temple there in the in the area where uh, he would be able to teach both men and women. And he sits down and he starts teaching. And so there's a group here. And you, I can't imagine what his subject would have been, but I would have loved to know what he was teaching there uh, that morning yeah. in the temple. You just think of all the different things he might have taught. But, but here he is. And this is when the scribes and Pharisees, John, report to us. And by the way, most of our... Um, you know, listeners will probably be familiar, but the Synoptic Gospels don't contain this particular account. In fact, 92% of John is unique. Yeah. Um, and so we have these these amazing scenes and and so much good is in the Synoptics. But that's, as you mentioned at the outset, John is such an interesting gospel because it is quite unique. 92%. That's, that's yeah. a huge percentage that is unique. And, and, and just so richly deep, yeah. I think uh, uh, fewer stories, but more doctrinal yeah. discourses by the savior and john yeah and that's a great word to use the depth some of some of the synoptics we, we kind of rush by some things it's almost a drive-by in some ways yeah. but john you really get these longer conversations yeah. you get these longer episodes and and this one with the woman taken in adultery is is uh, similar in the sense that it, we, we could use even more material, but what we have is, is a re, ridiculously rich. And so I'm excited to maybe explore a few ideas and see what you think and what our readers think of what's happening there. And so as, as he's got this scene, he's teaching, here comes this mob of, of Pharisees and scribes in verse three. And, it, and John writes, he says, they brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And that, that wording is, is unmistakable. It's it, this is happening, and I don't, I don't 
want to imagine that too care too quickly or too carefully yeah. rather just kind of quickly because it's 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 um offensive yeah but nonetheless, but you do kind of wonder where the other party is but yeah and that's coming up right i mean that's definitely coming up and i yeah. think it's part of the drama that un unfolds because uh you're so right carrie when they set her down in the midst so he's got a group around him in the temple here comes this group, sets her in the midst. They just kind of insert her unceremoniously. And then they said to him in verse four, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. Again, that language in the very act as if we could miss it from the earlier language. And so it's just crazy. And they say now the Moses in the law, and this is where that, that continual kind of haranguing by these who are um, apparently... Uh, according to the gospel writers, are in name only. They're nominal, right? Religious beings, uh, bless their hearts. And they've brought yeah. this woman. And, and I don't think that means all Pharisees or all Jews, but it means this right. group here. Yeah. This, this group, exactly. This group yeah. are struggling with that. And here they've come, and in many ways, betraying their hearts with this act, right? Yeah. Um, and so as they do so... <clears throat> They, they say, Master, she was taken in adultery in the very act. Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? And, of course, this sets up the what, what they think is an impossible situation, the no win, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's what clearly, they want. They, they, they want. They want to be, you know, as you can imagine, he's made these waves uh, and people are thronging him. He's very popular with certain groups. And this is a power struggle, right? That, that we're very familiar with. And so what happens is verse six, John reveals to us, if we weren't perceptive, uh, he helps us and says this, they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Right. And you can imagine on one side, if he does not back up Moses in the law, well, then, yeah, there's a, a clear problem because Moses yeah. is the prophet. And uh, but if he um, but if he does so, there would be hue and outcry, of course, for a number of reasons, even uh, legally. Right. That 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 wouldn't be allowed into Roman law, likely. So especially in the temple precinct was super interesting. Well, here's the thing. I want to spend just a moment here on this point, because what Jesus does is so surprising. He doesn't actually engage them, does he? Nope. He, nope. he does this really wild thing of, of, it says in the middle of verse 6, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. I just think that's so intriguing because here's this, this clear conflict this, uh, you know, obvious, like, and you can imagine, I, I know if it's anything like me, I hate conflict because I was taught when I was a kid that conflict is akin to contention or it's the next thing to contention. And we know that that's of the spirit of the devil from the Book of Mormon. And, you know, so yeah, maybe even always, from our uh, prophet recently. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Just, yeah. We're just kind of defaulted this way. And uh, and so I just want to resolve conflict as quickly as possible. I just want to avoid it. If I can't avoid it, I want to resolve it as quickly as I can. But Jesus doesn't address it. He does not address it. And I've been fascinated yeah. by why doesn't he respond immediately? Yeah, and, and there are places where he does, right? There, there very much so. So it's not like he can't, of this. right? Yeah. Great point, you know. And I think that 
the wonderful talk by um, Elder Hales years ago called Christian Courage. Uh, he, he describes like we're going to be met with a lot of interesting circumstances. And what we're supposed to do in each case is what Jesus would do. And then he's careful to say, and what did Jesus do? He did a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, sometimes he spoke, sometimes he didn't, sometimes he said this, sometimes he said that, you know, uh, sometimes he wouldn't even address this person. He never spoke to them. Other times, you know, he's engaging with somebody that you think, why is he talking to that person? You know, and so, so yeah, exactly a great point. And that Christian courage talk by Elder Hale is so helpful to kind of, Help us think about, okay, so so to, to that end, in fact, I'm intrigued, Carrie, what you think of this, and I don't know, it's a theory, it's a hypothesis of mine, that part of Jesus's ability to do his Father's will derives from his asking his Father what his will is, Right. I'm I'm convinced. I mean, I don't know if there are times where it's just coming to him so immediately he doesn't have to ask or something. But we know there are times where he goes to commune with God. So yes. clearly he does ask. And if it's coming to him immediately, it's because he is in the, the mental and emotional posture of always wanting to do the Father's will. So in his essence, he is always asking all the time in his heart, even if he already knows he's still asking. Right. And and I think in my younger years, I just thought I had this kind of magical view of Jesus that that's probably partly true. You know, is that Jesus was just, uh, you know, of of different stuff in some ways. And he just he just got it. He just got it. Right. The longer I've lived, though, the more I've seen scenes like these in the scriptures, the more the spirits kind of whispered to me that it's probably not as magical as I thought that there's actually some nuts and bolts and logistics to Jesus knowing father's will, just very similarly to ours. When he says, come follow me, it's a literal, it's not some kind of tease. You can't really do what I did, but you can kind of get close or maybe you can approximate. I think he, and so my suggestion here is going to, you know, is going to be that when he stoops down and whatever, we got lots of suggestions on what he wrote if he were actually writing something even. Yeah. My suggestion is that <clears throat> that's ancillary. Yeah. And that what he's really doing is carving out some space. Some Absolutely. Space for revelation, right? And I, I just think that I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? You you think I'm up in the night or what, what do you think? Uh, well, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's not not quite night yet, so no. But um <laughs> So I, I think we can put it in a couple of ways. One, uh, I think it's entirely possible. I hadn't really thought of that before, but I think it's entirely possible that the direction he, he gets uh, initially is wait. And that I, I've had that experience before. Like, just wait, just don't do anything. Just, just wait. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Right. Um, it may be that he actually immediately gets the answer. Okay, wait. And then this will happen. And, that. Um, and, and it may be though, that it is, wait and so he is waiting and asking and asking and asking but i like what you said because i think um I, I like the phrase carved out space for revelation because while that's likely that uh it's carving out space for him i'm positive it's carving out space for everyone else around him to be receiving <laughs> some revelation at the same time and that that's an yeah. essential part of this story and to that end i i, I so appreciate that uh 
you know, and, and who knows one day we'll, we'll get to ask the savior and others yeah. who were there. Okay. So here's what I thought was this, was, yeah. was this the case, but you know, I think it's a true principle nonetheless. And perhaps that's why I felt, um, you know, kind of to, to look at it this way and apply it, if not interpret it right. Uh, to apply it this way, because I, I, you think about what he ends up doing. What, what, and again, no critique in any way, just thinking just like, what he does is incredibly dangerous. This is a group of, of very untrustworthy, right, um, morally suspect at best individuals. How does he know that they're not going to throw the stones? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and maybe you could argue, oh, he goes and throws the stones and then it can be a chance for a miracle or something. Okay, great, great. I mean, God, God has a way of doing his amazing thing no matter what we throw at him. But I'm terribly intrigued by the idea that that what Jesus does could be interpreted as very reckless, you know, and, and again, I'm not ascribing anything non-godly to Jesus. It's just, how would he know? And how would you and I know? When, uh, there's been times in our lives when we felt prompted to do something that didn't make sense in the moment. Oh, yeah. Right? And the scriptures are full of those stories, things that like, they just make no sense. God says do this, and you're like, what? Ah, what? Walk around but, the but wall be, seven times? What? <laughs> yeah. You know, you just, huh? Okay. So what I think is super interesting then is, as as you said, the carving out of space for revelation, for the spirit, for the softening of hearts, for insight, etc., is for everyone there, I'm sure, if not for Jesus. And I do think it is for Jesus too, um, allows for this rather marked experience in which all of them have to rethink things, right? Every single party there um, has to rethink. You think about the woman is obvious. She has to rethink her life, which we're going to get into in a minute. But these accusers, they get a chance. Jesus does this marvelous, you know, 20 for one, you know, kind of thing. I don't know how many people were there, but, you know, it, it, it's not he's he's working with them too yeah he he loves their souls even though they're frustrating and everything he right and so as you see him he's giving them a chance to think deeply now some of the suggestions for whatever they're worth of what he's doing are interesting but before i get to maybe a couple of those which are our listeners may find interesting president packer once said this and i just think it's kind of a illustrative of what this could be like he said, on one occasion, a woman approached President Joseph Fielding Smith, and she complained that she'd attended a baptism that the ordinance wasn't valid. Apparently, the name had been stated incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So she said, I've been insisting that the ordinance be done over. It wasn't done properly. Okay, so here's this moment. And you can imagine it's probably after a state conference, and, and you know this person's come up and just all of a sudden just kind of thrown this in the face of, right? So, so the, the next thing President Packer said, super simple, but I thought, oh, this is really good. President Packer thought for a few minutes. Now, again, somebody's right in front of you. They've thrown this thing out, this controversy, yeah. this problem, this issue. And you, oh, what do you do? And President Smith just, he thought for a few minutes. Or President Packer. Then, right? Yeah. And then, then Elder Packer just says, and then he said, well, who went into the water? <laughs> Which is so interesting. He's like, okay, look, okay, all right. We're not going to go recreate that. But who went in? 
where did he get that idea? Like, how did he get the simplification? How did he know that it was okay that we're not going to go back and redo that or whatever? Well, I think, I think he's probably carving out a little space and saying, okay, I'm going to yeah. think, and I'm also going to go vertical here. I've got the yeah. horizontal going right in front of me, but I'm going to go vertical and I'm going to see what the spirit says, what the, the Lord's going to teach me what father's will is. And so I just like that and, little and hopefully illustration. give that woman a chance as well. Right. Right. There, there it is again. You know what I mean? This, feel this, some peace. You get two, three, five, 50 for one, you know, in this yeah. moment when we carve out the space, let the spirit work on others. So what's interesting about this is I, I remember thinking, huh, what, what could be going on uh, here with, you know, what, what, what's he writing? I've heard a lot of things. So here's a couple that yeah. are common that you can probably expand on too. But, but some have suggested that he's writing the Ten Commandments, particularly the thou shalt not commit adultery, this sin commandment, which is intriguing um, because uh, somebody else, as you said, was party to that. Where's, yeah. where's the guy? Where's yeah. this person? And is he in that group You know, uh, yeah. that are there? You know, yeah, is he um, part of the setup? Is that how they knew to go catch her? Because he's part of it, right? Right. Which is possible and so interesting. But anyway. It is. And and that's where some others have suggested that he's writing the accusers' names. That that, that you know, which is interesting, pointing to his seeric abilities, but uh, you know, but also and and then uh, the interesting thing is, you know, you have this um it is written, Moses in the law. Well, the law, when you look at it carefully, the law required both parties. Is actually, you know, that's in the law. And so they're actually not in accordance with the law. And so he may well be writing that portion of the law just to, <laughs> but but instead of throwing it in their faces, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Again, there's this this teaching moment, perhaps, right? Uh Jeremiah 17, 13 is our it's the only biblical reference we have to somebody writing on the ground in, in, in that kind of a setting. And so we don't get a ton of like help from the Bible about what he might have been doing. Yeah. So in the absence of something, you know, really clear that he's done with his quote writing or his his um, his uh, scribbling, if you will, on the ground, it says he, he wrote on the ground there without more maybe conclusive evidence about exactly that. I've appreciated John's um, openness there because I think it opened the way for me to feel like a rich field of revelatory kind of principles coming that we've mm. just been kind of addressing. And so when I'm good, when I'm on my game, I'm, I'm pausing more. I'm, I'm taking a little more time. I see the horizontal happening, but I'm trying to slow it down and get the vertical engaged. I had a, a woman approach me one time. I was in graduate work, and um, as part of it, I had to do some some teaching. And so I had taught. This was a sociology and religion course, and I had taught about my experience at Notre Dame and how I was received and how I received it. How did I? How you know? What, what was this like to be from one faith tradition and being steeped in knowledge about a different faith tradition? Right. And so I had expressed uh, some things on sociological grounds about how that had gone. Anyway, the next class period on my way into the classroom, this this uh, fellow student, she stopped me outside the class and she said, is this class bothering you? And uh, I said, um, I, I didn't know where she was going. I didn't mean to play dumb, but I just do it naturally. But I, I didn't know what she meant. And and so uh, she said, no, I mean, I, I, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. 
And truth be told, the professor in this particular course was a very godless uh, person by, by their own admission, kind of bragged about it. But here they were teaching the socio sociology of religion course, but they were not religious mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And so this was starting to get to her. And so she said that, you know, I don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't even know if I believe in God. Well, that's a crazy moment there. To, what am I supposed to say, you know? Yeah. And... And so I happily had that just kind of pause. I just paused. And while this horizontal was happening, I felt this sweet kind of response. Here's what I was told to say. I said, listen, all you need to do is just read your journal and you'll be okay. Hmm. And how could you know that, right? <laughs> How do I know she has a journal? How do I know she's written anything about God and her beliefs in her journal? Uh, I don't know any of that. No, no yeah. one could. And I, mm. but it was so cool because she she looked at me and she kind of backed up for a second and went, "Huh, okay." <laughs> that that I never spoke to her again. I mean, I probably <laughs> probably did. You know, what I, mean? I have no idea except it was just so fun. So in that moment, right. it just we've all had that sweet experience where if we'll, if we'll let it. And I was so grateful that God was probably fairly quick in that moment to get it to me. <laughs> but, um, but I just love that scene here where Jesus, I think is, is making room for the father's will to be known. What he ends up doing is rather shocking. And I just think whether it was Jesus's idea and he's checking it, or if he's just like, Oh, you want me to do that? Well, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, whatever the case is, I just, I love that moment for the revelatory uh, insight, I think, into it. I, uh, I feel like you've been sent to preach to me today. Uh, I mean, as you're <laughs> talking about this, I can think of so many times in just the last two weeks where I'm just always in a hurry, always behind, always in a hurry. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm moving from this meeting to this meeting to this meeting, and whether it's work or church or whatever else, I, I really need inspiration in all of those interactions. And I'm not necessarily taking the time that I need to for that to actually happen. Uh, and uh, I, this is an important lesson, I think, for all of us. Well, I, I appreciate that because it, it, you know how that works. The, the lessons you get, most are the ones that you're poorest at, and that's me. Yeah. And so I think th this was definitely a beautiful, beautiful thing for me. I'm working on it. I, I think we'll all be blessed as we continue to. You know, as we move from that, perhaps, uh, uh, fertile ground there to, to then, again, what happens. Um, in verse 7, his statement, of course, this just incisive statement that that rolls down through the centuries to each reader is he that is without or she that is without sin among you well then you can cast the first stone mm. you know and uh and what a remarkable thing for jesus to say um uh, at any rate but also because he was such a they have actually come to somebody that could have thrown the stone yeah yeah you know, none of them could have under that rule, but he could have. And uh, and so I I, I hope that's but he sure didn't, did he? <laughs> and, and and that's the key, isn't it? And he right. he's the only one that could have and he refuses to do so. And which is super interesting. So let's go into that a little bit. Again, he stoops down. I think it's super cool because he stoops down twice. Right. So he raises up to say that. And then yeah. he he stoops back down again. 
Yeah. And it's really clear. Like he stoops down and then he stands up and then he stoops down again. And, and as you said, I mean, it's, it's such a different thing. It's, it really is like, I'm going to ignore you for a while. Okay. I'm going to tell you one thing and then I'm back to ignoring you for a while. But <laughs> each time it carves space for either you could say revelation or conscience or whatever you'd like to say, but each time it, it does carve space for that. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating interaction. It really is. And I love how John has given us these details, right? And again, yeah. the interpretation, you know, which we know is the intent of the writer. One day we'll know that fully, but the applications that, that are so easy to come by in this rich little blocking details, I, I just appreciate it makes it so real. And so as of course he's stooped down now, verse nine, uh, when they heard it being convicted by their own conscience, as you said, they did go out one by one and fascinatingly beginning at the eldest, you know, it is, and I don't know what the significance there, except wisdom, you know, yeah. the sooner to it, you know, the, the and how does John even there. know that? I don't even know, but anyway, <laughs> so it's, like it's true. The age of all these guys. I mean, right. Good, good point. Narratively. Like, how would he even know? Um, so fun. So then they're left alone, but of course we know the midst of the people who are teaching, but he's left alone of that group. The mob, the right. mob is gone. And so there she is. And so when he lifts himself up now uh, for the third time, he, he saw none but the woman. And instead of, instead of saying something, he asks her a question, right? Mm -hmm. he, he could have observed, he could have made a statement, um, but instead, he asks the question that's quite obvious, <laughs> you know, and this, this, these questions come out in scripture now and then, don't they? Some of, some of our fun ones, you know, that we think of in Eden, you know, <laughs> you know, what God doesn't know where Adam is, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh. uh, I love the Moses, the Moses uh, take on it too, by the way, the Pearl Great Price. It, it's not where art thou? The, the, remember how it goes in Moses? The Moses, it's where are thou going where goest thou? Mm. which is so interesting right yeah. so where where are you you know anyway so he asked this question and i don't know what do you make of that carrie why would he ask her this question that's pain not painfully probably very um, gratefully obvious but why does he ask her do you think yeah and you have to assume it's again uh for her and others to have the opportunity to process this and in, in her formulating the response, but they have to also, even though they're not going to say it, others have to formulate it, that, that that process is teaching them something. And again, carving out some space. Don't you think? I don't really yeah. think that. I, I can't imagine any other reason for that. I know. It's so intriguing to me. I'm fascinated by the idea that, well, and I guess to, to work with that, because I think you're exactly right. And it's a thought that has occurred to me as well is that I'm intrigued by how, how she's processing this experience, right? As a person, like, you know what I mean? We see her almost as a character in this situation, but she's a, she's a person yeah. and she's committed adultery. And yeah. perhaps this isn't, we don't, we have no, no background on her. So yeah. no need to go make things up, but, but this thing we know, this sin, uh, which we understand is, is of course tantamount to right. The third 
most significant sin you can commit if you're going to count <laughs> significance from Book of Mormon style and, and also certainly enough to be stoned for, right, etc. And so how is she processing her own experience? And um, I, I think that I'm sure that I'm not the only one uh, that struggles with self-perceptions, with um, self-worth, you know, of, of recognizing that, um, as they used to say, God doesn't make, you know, he, God don't make no junk, as they used to yeah. say, right? Yeah. I remember as a kid, I used to really like that phrase, even though my mother cringed every time I would say that. <laughs> she was an English major. We'll come yeah, well, there you go. Grammar ideas later. But but I was reading something interesting um, about, about perceptions, and you've likely heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Mm -hmm. oh, cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy, CBT, if you will, is, is when you're taught to recognize, in a sense, it's metacognition, right? But mm -hmm. it's, it's almost meta, meta emoting as well. You know what I mean? It's, I, I just made that word up. It's probably a real word there, but, I, yeah, but you know, the I, idea that like I'm it. thinking about my feeling, I'm thinking about my thinking. And right. so Jonathan Haidt, right, out of University of Virginia, uh, non-LDS, but a, a fascinating scholar and social commentator, he, he uh, recently wrote about this uh, kind of phenomenon on, on campuses where students are struggling with feeling safe and feeling like certain uh, topics or certain speakers or certain experiences are would be damaging or would be right even violent um, when in in times past those would have been seen as educative right, right. informative this is and, what you're at a university being, for to hear different points of view and so yeah on. yeah that kind of thing that that's and so anyway he's kind of ruminating about this and he says he says in CBT, this cognitive behavioral therapy, says you learn to recognize when your ruminations and automatic thinking patterns exemplify one or more of a, about a dozen cognitive distortions, right? And, and so he names a few and he says like catastrophizing, right? Everything's a catastrophe. Um, black and white thinking, it's just either or, right? Uh, fortune telling. Right. Uh, you're, you, and it's almost always pessimistic, you know, right? Because, oh, this is going to happen and it's going to be bad. Right. Uh, or, or reasoning from emotion, what we call emotional reasoning. Right. I feel it. Therefore, it, it's it's running my my rationale. Right. So he continues and he says, thinking in these ways causes depression as well as being a symptom of depression. And so breaking out of these painful distortions is one cure. Right. Mm -hmm. And so. He gives us a little hypothesis, and this will be the last point of his, and we'll come back to this scene. If colleges supported the use of these cognitive distortions, rather than teaching students skills of critical thinking, which is basically you know, what CBT is, well, then this would cause students to become depressed, right? And we see yeah. such amazing numbers of this over just this last you know, it's, decade. It's a pandemic plus. wave. Yeah. It, it's fascinating, right? And so in this way, he says, uh, if so, then colleges are actually performing reverse CBT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're part of the <laughs> and, problem, right? <laughs> right. You know, and and now, now again, that, that could be taken as, you know, any number of ways. In a spiritual way, though, think about what this woman could be thinking. Um, what does the adversary do when we have 
um, committed a sin, right? He, he attacks us mercilessly with accusations, not just about what we did, but what does he really say? It talks to us about our worth, right? It's who you are. Yeah. What you've just done is an indicator of who you are. Yeah. Right? Now, this woman taken in adultery, her life is grass. Her life, she could have been stoned in that moment. Who knows, right? I mean, it's, so so this, this idea, right, of Jesus asking her, hey, wait, where, where did all this go? I think is super important for her to articulate. Right. You know, our self-talk is this. A lot of the CBT is actually retraining your self-talk. Right. Mm. Retraining how you speak to yourself about yourself, how you view yourself. And so I think when he invites her uh, to speak out that I actually don't have any accusers. <laughs> iterating that. Right. Yeah. It, it, it brings it brings the truth of it more evident. And then think with her own, her own words. The Holy Ghost can bear witness. When yeah. we speak the truth, the, the spirit witnesses. And now she can have this witness that, wait a minute, I don't. I, I don't have any accusers. Therefore, I'm reading into this, I know. But therefore, my own self-talk needs to correct. I don't actually have any accusers. I don't. Because then, of course, Jesus says, I don't either, right? I don't either. I've just gotten rid of them. And I don't accuse you either. And I just think it's so powerful when we consider what happens. Now, this is where I want to share what I think intrigued you probably about inviting me maybe to share this, this moment with you. My mother's was in English. She still is. She's just on the other side. She's graduated. Um, <laughs> but uh, she she's an English major. And she taught Spanish and English at our local high school. And, um, I... Um, I've always appreciated that even though it drove me nuts, she would try to correct me all the time, fix, fix my language. And it still needs it. But, but I, I'm just so intrigued by the idea that if we talked about a gospel grammar, right? If we, if we spoke in terms of language and how we speak and write and the literature in a sense of, of the gospel, then, then it has punctuation. And in, in Jesus's perfect punctuation, I love how he turns this moment, which could have been a final moment, quite literally, of her life. Instead, he not only physically extends her life by not allowing them or not participating, of course, uh, you know, horror of horrors, uh, in, in a stoning and would have ended her life. But he also engages in a way that he refuses to put a period on her sinful life. Right? And so... If, if, we, if we think about this, he puts rather a different punctuation. When he makes his statement, uh, you know, which of course you see there in verse um, 11, he says to her, neither do I condemn the colon, go, comma, and sin no more. Okay. And there's, there's a period there, right? And what's the period on? The period on is is an infinitive. Your life goes forward and you can live it in such a way that you can change and no longer participate in these other things. So you think about how fun it is that he puts a colon, he puts a, a comma, 
for our for our purposes, we could imagine you know repunctuating this as a dash, yeah. you know, a semicolon. The point is, he's he's not committing any kind of judgment that we would call final in this moment, right? And in fact, what I think is fun about this. Uh, there's so many things, but but, but consider this. And, and here's a, a statement of of President Oaks. And he goes to this moment to make this point. He says, and this is in the August enzyme of, of 1999. So we're reaching back a little bit, but August of 99, uh, even the savior during his mortal ministry refrained from making final judgments. We see this in the account of the woman taken in adultery. Now, why I find this important is, yes, of course, I'm not supposed to judge my neighbor. And I'm working on that and I'm trying to do better at that. But but it's not just the neighbor I'm not supposed to put a final judgment on. It's me. It's uh, me, right? Yeah. I'm not supposed to put periods on my life either, right? And yet, how often do I fall prey to that? Oh, yeah, we know this, uh, that again. We always knew, you know, blah, 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 blah. you know what I mean? How many times did my self-talk go to that kind of period? This is yeah. my identity. Failure is not feedback. It's identity in this in the accuser's hands, right? Uh, Revelation 12, right? He accused them day and night, it says, right? He accused his brethren day and night, uh, speaking of the adversary. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, no, we, as many, as oft times as my people will come to me and repent, I will forgive them, we, right? Yeah. And it's just beautiful. So Elder, Elder Oaks at the time continues, and he says, after the crowd who intended to stone her had departed, Jesus asked her about her accusers, hath no man condemned thee? When she answered, no, Jesus declared, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. In this context, the word condemn apparently refers to the final judgment. The final judgment. Now, if that's the final judgment, we more of a statement in a second, then what? how significant it is for me to not pass final judgment on myself. Very good. clearly anyone else either and so he continues president oaks the lord obviously did not justify the woman's sin in fact his statement is it's a sin stop doing it you know what i mean yeah. He, yeah. he calls it a sin he doesn't soft pedal this we'll talk yeah, i think that's a poor point he doesn't pass it by He's he doesn't say uh, let's it. just not worry about this he's like okay this is what it is Here's what to do. <laughs> now, stop it. Go for it, right? And yeah. so he, he simply told her that he didn't condemn her, and that is he would not pass final judgment on her at that time. What a great, what those three words, at that time, he's mm -hmm. not passing final judgment. And then Elder Oaks says, as he continues uh, the scripture reading, he says, this interpretation is confirmed by what he then said to the Pharisees in verse 15. He told them, ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. The woman taken in adultery was granted time to repent, time that would have been denied by those who wanted to stone her. Uh, isn't that great? That is good. It's really, really good. You know, uh, uh, well, this is a slight tangent, so maybe we'll need to come back to what you're going to say. But, but only kind of you—you you just talked about you know not letting it affect us as well. That it's so easy for us to take things that we do, even things that we do repeatedly, like yeah. we may have a, a sin that we struggle with repeatedly, and uh, and I've seen this uh, in my own life, and I've seen it in other people's lives a lot, where 
you repent of something and maybe you even go like five years without it, or maybe it's five days or whatever it is, but you're doing, you feel like you're doing pretty well. And then you do it again. And, and when it's time to repent again, Satan is so good at lying and saying, God doesn't want to hear from you anymore. You have Especially done this about so this. many times. Yeah. About this. Yeah. Yeah. You've done this so many times. It's clear. You don't really mean it. So he doesn't want you to go to right now. That's a lie. It's an absolute lie. And as you said, you quote, you know, where he says, as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their sins, which is a very, very high percentage when you think about it. That's 100 <laughs> percent of the time. Um, <laughs> but but the issue with that is exactly what you talked about, that what Satan's really trying to tell you is you are the kind of person who will fail at this all the time. So this is who you are, this failure, right, as opposed to this is what you're doing. You're working on this problem. And uh, that just when you said failure, it reminded me of uh, a poster one of my my close friends who was my roommate in college uh, had that uh, came up for me at a pretty big time in my life, actually, when uh, I, I mean, I'd seen it every day, but uh, he quoted it to me and uh, seared it into my mind the day that I got a letter. I was applying to, to teach for seminaries and I got the letter that said, we recommend you don't career, pursue a career in teaching. Um, and uh Oh, uh, I disagree me, with that completely, yeah, well, by the way. Uh, well, that's all right. I mean, I, there's a reason. I think I wasn't supposed to go that seminary route. I, I mean, when they came to observe me, I felt like stupor of thought. I couldn't talk. I, I don't blame oh. I couldn't talk. I couldn't do anything. And I think I, God didn't want me to do well, honestly. There we go. Um, that's it. But still, when you sense. get that letter, that that hurts. And uh, actually, the, the person who sent me that letter, didn't he didn't recognize that that was me many years later when he was asking me for some teaching advice and so on. And this is just how <laughs> this is how things go. I have no... <laughs> Uh, malice about it because I, I I was bad that day and I think God like you really made it so I couldn't talk but um, but what my friend said to me and it shaped not only that moment but so many things about me he quoted that poster to me it was a poem that said anonymous I don't know who said it but anyway it goes like this success is not for those who quail but for those who fail and then with courage twice as great take issue once again with fate but that that line is so important. I think success is for those who fail, uh, partially because if you're not trying, you're not failing. And if you're not getting better, you're not failing. Uh, right. In fact, uh, I, I water ski a lot. And uh, I always tell people, you know, they're like, oh, you're, you're going to laugh because I fall or whatever. And I, I always tell them if you're not falling, you're not learning. Yeah. Uh, you you tell you show me where you're water skiing and you're not falling. And I'll tell you, well, I guess you don't care about getting better anymore. Um you're, you're not and, trying. You're not. Yeah. You're not elevating. You're not yeah. pushing the envelope. That's exactly right. You've got to fail. You, if you're getting better, then you are failing. Uh, and if you're not failing, then you're not really, really trying to get better. And um, and that's true of overcoming sin as well, or of overcoming our fallen nature and our shortcomings and our inabilities and everything else. Right. It's the question is whether you're trying. It's not whether you're failing or not. Of course, you're failing. Uh, you're not perfect yet, so if you're trying, then you're failing. The question is, are are you trying, and are you going to get back in the saddle again? Uh, yes. I, to me, in fact, that's the whole question where uh, God keeps saying, return unto me, and uh, he keeps, uh, you know, he has chesed for us. He just keeps giving us another chance. The question is, every time you fail, that's that's not, the question is not whether you're going to fail. The question is, every time you fail, will you get up again? Yeah. Just get yeah. up again. And, you know, another way to put that, I suppose, is do we see our decisions producing data, yeah. right? Is, is, it, is it about recognizing that um, 
I think it was John Beck, I think, who's the quarterback guru now, former BYU quarterback. Yeah. Pretty sure it was he that talked about one of his coaches in his time as an athlete had said, guys, failure is feedback. Yeah. Just it's feedback. That's and, what it is. And, do you know what I mean? And so, and, and when you think of that, it just changes it. Like you were saying, it's like, oh, the embracing of the, the data of my decisions. So I did it this way and this was the outcome. Oh, okay. Yeah. Am I, am I analyzing and digging in that data and saying, oh, okay, right. Okay. That, so that did work. Now what's the next iteration of that success or yeah. that didn't work. Okay. So now I'm going to have to try it this way. You know what I mean? Am I, yeah. am I digging through the data, analyzing the data of my daily decisions? And seeing the feedback in what the adversary is going to try to couch as some kind of identity of yourself as a failure, rather than your discipleship in determining truths out of the, the data of your decisions and how they are interacting with the eternal truths that have been given to us, mm-hmm. right? Now you sound like Thomas Edison in the whole, uh, you know, that's, I, I just know a thousand <laughs> ways to ways not a light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, yeah. and, and that to me, that's just changes everything. It changes everything. That's why it's okay to repent a million times. Right. Yeah. That's why, that's why repentance is, to... a, is a daily thing because it's literally just the adjustment as president Nelson has said of how we breathe, how we think from our discussion today, how I talk to myself. How yeah. I process my experiences and when I mess up, when I do something that was okay and just mediocre, how do I assess that versus when I really did it great or when I did it awfully, whatever. Am I, am I getting into the data of those decisions and really yoking up with Christ and taking his yoke, right? And so I just love how the Savior works with this woman here. And I, I know we've taken probably the bulk, probably the, the whole time we've had. But I just think it's such a rich moment for how Jesus wants to punctuate our lives. Yeah. He wants to engage the gospel grammar in our lives. He wants us to engage it in our own lives and, and us to engage it in others' lives. And that is to interpret people's lives with commas, dashes, semicolons, and colons. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I love that idea of the dash and the colon. That's that's what my life is right now. It's it's, it's a dash or a colon. Yeah, it, it is right. What's finished? It's just, it's just episodes that have come and gone. And if we're wise, we have taken them for the data they're supposed to be presenting to us. And no. that all of that data should be as normal for every person, breaking our hearts, making our spirits contrite, and sending us vertically to our savior and redeemer uh, through him to our father. Right. And, and that's the beauty I think of, of the gospel message in every time and place. This episode with this woman, I think uh, is so beautiful. I love, I love what happens now. The JST uh, to conclude on this episode, the JST is pretty cool because once, once he has said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. The footnote there, uh, I think it started 2013 is when they first put this into the LDS editions. Um, But it actually says this, isn't this great? And the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. Mm. And don't you love that? So she's glorifying him. Her focus is on him. And she gets that his name is the only name 
under heaven whereby salvation can come, if you will. You know what I mean? Yeah. She gets it that uh, I'm not saving myself. And those guys that were accusing me, they can't save themselves. And you know, none of us, no, we all need a savior and redeemer. And we have, we actually have. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's really good. Well done, Phil. Well done. Well, um, maybe a couple other quick thoughts. I, I love what happens in chapter nine. And, and by yeah. the way, I guess one quick thought to leave this episode with is here's Elder Holland in his in inimitable way. Okay. This is, this is April, 2016 general conference. He says with the gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the strength of heaven to help us, we can improve. And the great thing about the gospel is we get credit for trying, even if we don't always succeed. What a cool thing to say. We get credit for trying. Then yep. he says, please remember tomorrow and all the days after that, that the Lord blesses those who want to improve, who accept the need for commandments and to try to keep them, who cherish Christ-like virtues and then strive to the best of their ability to acquire them. Now, real quick personal thought on this. I I was serving recently in a, in a young married stake and... Uh, as you do in your callings, all of our callings, uh, the Lord reveals things to you. And he uses these as opportunities to teach. And he's got us ministering, but he's also teaching us lots of things yeah. as we do. You know, it's just so fun. Again, two for one, 50 for one, you know, yeah. uh, with God. He's so good at multiplication that way, right? But but anyway, I, I was I was sharing with a couple that was going to the temple for the first time. And, and then they were getting to, ready to be sealed. And and it just dropped in there, this, this kind of crystallization, this distillation, if you will, the doctrine of the priesthood. And it was beautiful. It was, it was uh, essentially um, covenants are not just souped up commands. Covenants are literally the means by which God offers us the divine help in order to keep the commandments. Mm. Now, when That's I good. thought about that, right, think about yeah. that, I thought, when I thought that through, I realized, wow, when I was a kid, I was a little nervous about the temple. I, I think most people are. It's, you know, it's somewhat secretive. It's sacred, of course, as we say. Yeah. But, but we often me. treat it as secret rather than sacred. We, yeah. Right. And therefore, we don't prepare adequately. But one of the things I didn't get was I thought, OK, just think. So like this woman taken in adultery, each one of us has sins in our lives for which we darn well know we shouldn't be doing. And we're embarrassed before God and ourselves and anyone else who might know. And you're right. We're, we're processing this. Well, if you if the prospect of going to the temple is I'm going to get souped up commandments. Well, how excited am I going to be about doing that? Yeah, good point. Right. I'm going to be freak. I mean, like I can't keep the commandments I got. What are these new ones that are looming that I'm going to have even more accountability for? And I can't keep though. I can't keep the ones I got. I, that's literally how I thought. Now I still went <laughs> and I'm so glad I did because then when I got in there and now, of course, we can read this on the church's website and, and Elder Bednar began, you know, I'm sure well counseled with the, the first presidency in the form of the 12 saying, Hey, there are a very few things we can't say that happened in the temple yeah. that we covenant in the temple, not to say, but, the covenants themselves, we can talk about those five. And it's fascinating, those five covenants. Think about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I got in there, I was expecting something I'd never heard of before. Instead, I got things like 
sacrifice, obedience, um, opposite order. Okay, um, the gospel. What? This isn't new. Chastity. Yeah, that would be pounded in as a teenager. Okay, and and consecration. Yeah, I mean, right. But that in the doctrine comes a thousand times, right? I've heard of all of those. So wait a minute. What is this thing I'm doing? If they're not new commandments, what am I doing? And then it, it hit me, it distilled. This is how I'm trying to help you keep them. When you come and bind yourself to me in the covenant making process, I now can, and one day you think he's going to be able to fully explain why this is, what the properties of this are, but I can now give you more help than I could give you free covenant. Covenants are enablers, if you will. That's a that's a probably a poor term because it's a it's got you know yeah, yeah. but yeah. but it's it's uh, the means of strengthening, shall we say, right? And perhaps even healing through the atonement of Christ. As we bind ourselves to Him in this way, we now have access to His powers in return to do First Nephi three seven, right? God doesn't give a commandment; save He prepares a way. I've started to see better than I ever did that the temple is the means by which we can keep the commandments. It's not like future commandments. It's not like, for, it's it's like, no, it's for here right now. I need it for the journey. It's not something I get to at the end of the journey. It's, it's the means to do the journey, mm. right? And seeing the temple then as the great access. And here's where maybe because of time, we probably close at John 10 with his statement about, I am the door. What a fascinating name or description, right? Descriptive name for himself that he would give in John 10. He says it two different times, verses seven and nine, as I recall. And and you and I have been to sheep coats over there, right? And, and where he was and everything. And it's fascinating how they they formed these, you know, sheep coats. And the, there's a door, if you will. You're keeping predators out. You're keeping marauding, you know. Yeah. And And he says he's the door. And so if I think about that, especially in light of the temple, think of this woman, her, her life is closed. It's over. She's got a brick wall full of stones that people want to stone her with. She's, she probably wants to stone herself in some ways, frustrated in her own self-disclosure, like, oh, I'm so not good at what God wants me to do. And he's the door. He got, he, he got rid of all those stones. There's now a life ahead of her. There's no period, there's no wall, there's no barrier. It is beautiful. And he gives this door to each of us. His, he is the door of salvation. And, and it's, as you recall, Peter says this. Um, where did I put that? I, he says in Peter, this is 2 Peter 1. He says, for so, this is 2 Peter 1 verse 11. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so then he says, so I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Remembrance of what? Remembrance that he is the door. There are no unscalable walls. There are no middle walls of partition that he does not break down. If we will come to him, even sometimes when we're brought to him by other people, mm. I'd love it. He's like, I got you. Let's do this. My yoke is easy. 
You've been trying it the hard way. Come, bind yourself to me. I will help you. I will help you keep the commandments I've given you. I'm so thankful for that. I bear my witness of it, of him and our father's great plan that features his remarkable sacrifice in our behalf. I'm so thankful for it. Bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil. I don't want to take away from it by doing anything else other than saying thank you.